Good morning, Chapel Hill. I am delighted to see you here, ready, eager to worship on this World Communion Sunday. A special greeting to our friends from, Thai, from Thailand. It is so good to have you back. Welcome. Welcome. We're looking forward to your ministry to us later in the service. For those of you who are visiting, I'm Pastor Mark. I work here, and uh, I extend a particular warm welcome to you. In fact, if you're greeting us for the first time, we're going to have a newcomer's uh, coffee, and I'd love to be able to say hi to you. Pastor Bill and I will be there. So right around the corner, free, free coffee, great cookies that are really bad for you, and come and join us. And then um, today will be the chance, if you're not yet a member of our church, uh, every time I hear about people who have been here forever but never have joined, I say, why would you not want to take that final leap into what it means to be a member of our church family? So second service, after second service at, at noon up in the, in the boardroom, we are going to have our first step class. It's offered quarterly, and, and we would just be delighted to have you come and uh, find out what it means to be a part of our church as, as a member, and uh, I hope you will uh, take me up on, on that offer. One other thing, I'm always astounded at how last-minute uh, Gig Harbor people are about signing up for stuff, but guys, listen, we have a men's retreat next week. My uh, good friend Tommy Allen will be the speaker He's an incredible communicator, pastor of an EPC church up north. Tommy is a, a former army ranger. That in itself is pretty interesting. But he also had a brush with death. In fact, a miraculous brush with death where he was, he was uh, saved from what would have surely been uh, just debilitating uh, uh, disease, if not death, this year. And it, he's going to be talking about that. Would you join me and the other men who are already signed up for that? Tomorrow's our deadline. And it would be great to join us together next weekend, next weekend for our men's retreat. Well, I want to say thanks to uh, Pastor Ellis for the great job that he did last week in taking on a very challenging and controversial text. He... he was so exhausted, he had to take a little vacation and... Uh... I said, get used to it, pal. Um, but anyway, I, Ellis did a, a terrific job, and, uh, and, the, and in case you missed it, I hope you'll download it. It really, that passage is really key to understanding the progression of Paul's logic. Now, one of the problems with Romans is you really kind of need to teach it from beginning to end because it's one progressive piece of logic after another. Well, we can't do that. It would just take forever. So that's, what, that's why it's important to come to church every week and continue to hear it. But it builds, uh, he is building a, a, an argument for us to explain this incredible good news. And of course, the good news that Paul is, is writing to the Romans about and hence writing to us about is this message of the good news of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ. He sums it up in the nutshell in, in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, which is one of those verses that if you're trying to memorize some scripture, that would be one to grab onto. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek. Please take note of those last couple of few words, to the Jew first and to the Greek. You're going to actually see that appear again and again throughout, and you're going to see references to it. And in order for you to understand why, I want to give you a little bit of more historical context, okay? You know me, I'm a historian by training, that's what I love, and, and so sometimes I drag you into my, uh, into my study, and uh, I'm, going to, I'm going to do that right now. And in order to do that, let me set it up for you this way. Chapel Hill's uh, made up of a variety of groups of, of people. I'll bet there are most, though, that are gathered here in this service would identify with this, with this particular party. 
Um, you were maybe born into the church. You're a child of the church. Um, you grew up with the hymnal and with liturgy and order and structure, and there's something comfortable to you uh, to, to, about that for you, right? Um, you're the ones that find real uh, meaning in the traditions like St. Andrew's Sunday. You, you value beautiful sanctuaries, and you build pipe organs to sing the magnificent hymns of the church. That's kind of who you are. And I bet most in this group would probably identify with that. And, and there's a part of me that really identifies with that too. I was, a, I was a child of the church. And so all of these things, the structure, the order, the rituals, the rules, that, that, that's a, a place of comfort. And I, we might call that group the traditionalists. And I don't mean that in a negative sort of way, but we just value tradition and we experience God more fully, perhaps in, a, in greater structure, in greater order, Right? There's another group, and I suspect more of them that'll come next service, that would fall into a different category. Maybe um, they didn't come to Christ as a family. Maybe they didn't even get raised up in the church. They came to faith later on, or, or they came to faith in the Jesus People Movement. How many of you remember the Jesus People Movement? Uh, so they might have been raised up in a, in a situation that was very much different. And so for, for them, the whole idea of the structure, denominations, order, ritual, tradition, it's maybe not as compelling for them, right? And, uh, and so for them, they might build a, if it was up to them, they might build a warehouse to worship in, as many are today. Their, their churches are basically warehouses. They would prefer um, an electric guitar to a, a pipe organ. And, and they just prefer greater freedom, perhaps, to greater structure. So we'll call them, without any pejorative sense, non-traditionalists. That's just who they are. They experience God in a little bit of greater freedom. Now, I am delighted to say that Chapel Hill com- combines both of these groups. And there might be, I'm just curious, how many would say probably fall into the traditionalist category, right, right here? How many, even though you're here, might fall into the non-traditional category? There we go, see? So we have managed to find a way to live together, haven't we? In a way that's rich and beautiful and diverse and that, 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 that is valuable to us. Um, and, I, and I love that. All right, so I want to play a game with you. Uh, imagine that tomorrow we hear the news that uh, the Geek Harbor City Council has passed a law that says traditionalists are banned from the city. Traditional Christians can no longer live here. They can no longer worship here. They have to go at least on the other side of the bridge. And so suddenly, those of us, most of us here, 9 o'clock service is gone. And we're out of here, and which means that this church will be left in the hands of those who fall more into the non-traditional category of worship. Things are going to change, aren't they? And so imagine that it goes on for many years where we longingly look across the bridge to what used to be. And then someone comes to their senses, they rescind the law, we are allowed to return to Gig Harbor, and what is the first thing that we traditionalists are going to do? We're going to come back to our sweetheart church and see how things are. What do you think after five years we're going to discover? I'll bet we're going to discover that things are a little different that things have moved in a different direction, I, but that, that there's going to be some tension, some anxiety, as we try to figure out how to reintegrate ourselves back into the lives of this church. How are we going to follow Jesus together? I, that long story has a purpose and a point, I promise you. Here it is. What I just described to you is exactly what happened to the church in Rome. It's exactly what happened. Now, we don't know exactly when the church got planted, but probably sometime in the, in the early 30s, shortly after Jesus is sent back to, back to heaven, which is probably 30, 31, somewhere in there, not 33. 
And we know that uh, there were Romans who were present at Pentecost because Acts tells us so. They were both Jewish Romans and non-Jewish Romans who were present. They heard Peter's great preaching. They, uh, they were converted along with 3,000 people and they were baptized. And so it's not hard to imagine that that day, probably in a, or a spring of 30 AD, they made their way back to Rome and they planted a church, maybe two or three little house churches because we know that Romans is written to at least three different little house churches. And so the Jews and the Gentiles, they formed this church together in Rome. Paul had not formed it. He hardly knew any of the people that were there. And so for about 20 years, here were the Jews and the Gentiles living out church together. They had the Jews who were kind of the scrupulously religious people, the ones who come from a very moral background. And we had the Gentile believers in Jesus who came from an idolatrous culture that was notably immoral. We had the Jews that had strict religions, uh, strict uh, rules about, about religion and about eating and about cleanliness and, uh, and all of the rest. And we had the Greeks who had very few rules at all. We had the Jews who tended, frankly, to be kind of cliquish. They, they stayed to their own. They, they were standoffish to the rest of the culture. And you had the Greek Christians who were very much a part of the culture from which they had come. And for 20 years, though, they hammered out what it meant to live in Christian community together. Then in 49 AD, Emperor Claudius, Emperor Claudius got fed up with the Jews. They were a, a difficult bunch to deal with. They were often causing insurrection and riots and, and protests, and finally Claudius had had it. And so he banned all Jews from the city of Rome, kicked them out kicked them out, which meant all Jewish believers in Jesus also kicked out of Rome, and it left only the non-traditionalist, the free-thinking, free-spirited Greek Gentile Christians to run the church, to organize the church, to lead the church. And so for five years, that's what they did. They did it without the structure and without the traditions and without the heritage and without the rules that had come from their Jewish brothers and sisters. Five years later, Claudius dies, and the edict is revoked, and all of the Jews are allowed to return to Rome. And when the Jewish Christians returned to Rome, they found a church that had changed. Predictably, after five years of them not being there, it had moved in a freer direction. It was less concerned with the things that Jewish Christians were concerned about. So when you're reading the letter of Paul to the Romans, He wrote it about two years after they would have been reconciled. And he's addressing, one of the things he's doing is addressing this conflict between the Jew and the Greek, which you're going to hear again and again. How do you take your backgrounds and find a commonality in the person of Jesus that draws us together? Do you understand that? And it's going to be very important to keep that tucked away because in the weeks to come, we're going to see him talking first to the Greek and then to the Jew. The Jew and then to the Greek and bringing it all together, I promise you, if you will hang in there with me. Last week, though, was a perfect example of how Paul starts by talking to one audience. You remember he's talking about the, the idolatry of sexuality, how we have turned the creation of God in, into something to be worshipped. And he was condemning that. And, um, and for, for, for Paul's uh, Jewish readers, they would have understood completely what he was saying. For these are the Christians who have as the background the Old Testament, who believe that sexuality belongs only between a man and a woman within the covenant of marriage. 
The Greeks who were reading his letter, however, came out of a very different background. Homosexual behavior was a normal part of Roman culture. So when Paul uses that as an example, just an example of idolatry, of how people worship the creation instead of the creator, he would have had two very different responses. The Greek Christians would have perhaps struggled a little bit trying to understand how to deal with this very countercultural message that Paul was giving to them. It's still countercultural, by the way. It's still the message of God, by the way. But they would have struggled with that. On the other hand, the Jews would have been, the Jewish Christians would have been doubting vigorously in agreement and saying, Preach it, Paul! Preach it, brother! Right? But then Paul continues. He continues on after that, as you recall, at the end of chapter 1 with a long list of other sins uh, that are just as corrosive, just as toxic, that they also incur God's wrath. They are less obvious sins, but he said they are every bit as destructive to the human soul. And so he has this long list at the end of chapter 1. He talks about covetousness and envy and strife and arrogance. Any of that stuff strike closer to home? And the Jewish leaders who were in such vigorous agreement with Paul about all of that nasty stuff that those unrighteous people were doing, suddenly they discover a boomerang that's about to hit them right in between the eyes because now he's turned his attention to them. And so now we turn from the unrighteous to the self-righteous in chapter 2. We, we, the text I'm choosing is the first five verses of Romans uh, chapter 2. Listen to the word of the Lord. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourselves because you, the judge, are practicing the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. But do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and his forbearance and his patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. So, holy God, would you help us to come to grips with a very hard word that is a part of the good news. And, uh, and God, would you change the hearts that need to be changed this day, especially those of us who tend to look at others and not at ourselves. Forgive us for that. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a word that repeated itself again and again and again in that text. I wonder if any of you noticed it. Yes, judge. Did you see it? Some form of the word judge or judgment appears seven times in those five brief verses. Judge, 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 judge. This group would remember Rowan and Martin's laugh-in. Remember, here comes the judge. I'm not even going to waste that joke on the second service, but, but here, here, here comes the judge. 
Here comes the judge. I mean, that's what this is talking about. And do you hear how hard that boomerang hits those Jews, those Jewish Christian readers as they're listening to Paul? They would have been cheering him on as he's talking about God's wrath against certain kinds of sins, against the obvious sins of the unrighteous, the unwashed, the filthy masses. And then suddenly they find themselves in that last part of chapter 1 included in that very same list, not the unrighteous but the self-righteous the judgmental, the hypocritical, and he hits it pretty hard in the very first part of chapter 2. He says, therefore, and every time you see the therefore, what do you have to figure out? What it's there for. Anytime you see a therefore, figure out what it's there for. So we go back to the very last part of chapter 1 where he's got this whole long list, and he's saying, therefore, because you... The, the, the self-righteous people who have been condemning the unrighteous, you are guilty of all of these other kinds of sins and that are just as deserving of God's wrath. Therefore, you have no excuse, O oh man, every one of you who judges. There's the word, who judges. We've already heard about how God's wrath, and by the way, let me remind you again, the word wrath, it's such a nasty-sounding word to our culture. But God's wrath really is simply this, his hatred for sin. God's holy hatred for sin. He hates what sin has done. He hates the corrosive spiritual nature of sin. He hates how sin has divided us from him, from the relationship that he longs to have with his creation. He hates that. And so he is justly wrathful against what sin has wrought in his creation. We've already heard in earlier in chapter 1 how God's wrath has been revealed against blatant immorality. But suddenly, as you get to the end of that chapter and the beginning of chapter 2, we discover that the moralists who are tisk, tisk, tisking those more obvious sinners are just as guilty and just as deserving of God's wrath because of their hidden sins. Last Wednesday, Hugh Hefner died. At the age of 91. I don't think many of us here would argue that Hugh Hefner was a great champion for traditional moral values. <laughs> in fact, even those of us who might have peeked at a Playboy magazine at some time in our lives would admit that the sexual revolution that he helped to launch has degraded our society. And it is so easy for us to tisk, tisk, tisk Hugh Hefner and perhaps even to speculate a little too gleefully about what must have happened last Wednesday when he breathed his last and he opened his eyes face to face with the Lord Jesus. But Paul would say, be careful, everyone who judges, be careful. You who are quick to judge this unrighteous man because be careful, you who judge will also be judged. The most misquoted passage of Jesus' teaching is, judge not lest ye be judged. He's not saying don't judge, he's saying judge wisely. He goes on to say, for in the same way that you judge, for the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. He's not saying we should not execute judgment, wise judgment. He said we should not be judgmental. He is saying that the way we judge others will become the rule by which God judges us. So go ahead and apply that as, as you wish. So I want to paraphrase what we just heard in Romans chapter 2 with that in mind. Paul writes, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge Hugh Hefner's obvious sins and yet practice other hidden sins yourself, do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? 
And given that 57% of American pastors admit to either presently or in the past at least struggling with pornography, I think it's a breathtaking hypocrisy that all of us are pretty quick to engage in. Last week we learned from Pastor Ellis that the consequences of our sin are themselves an expression of God's wrath. Remember that? He gave them up. He gave them up. In other, in other words, you want to live this way? You want to live in the pig, pigsty? Then go ahead and wallow in your mud. That, I'll let you to it. And so the consequences of our sin in, become our, our judgment. If I eat gluttonously, my heart suffers. If I sin sexually, my conscience is seared and my body might suffer. If I treat others maliciously, my relationships suffer. If I gossip, my reputation might suffer. That is judgment. Another way of thinking about this is that this is God's way of parenting with love and logic. If you've ever taken parenting with love and logic, isn't that what God the Father is doing here? The logical consequences of our behavior are one of the ways that we experience God's wrath against our sin. But we discover in this passage today it's not the only way. We discover that one day God will make all things right. He's dawdling for a reason. We'll see it in just a moment. But one day, a day called the day of wrath, he will have had enough and he will pronounce judgment on everyone, on the unrighteous and on the self-righteous, on the obvious sinners and on the more clever sinners, on those who have fingers pointed at them and those who like to do the pointing Paul says we all deserve God's wrath and judgment. And there's only one reason that he is delaying that day of judgment. Did you see what it is? Because he still wants to restore us to himself. He is delaying because he wants us to repent. He wants more people to repent. Paul uses these words. He says, do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and his forbearance and his patience, not knowing that the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance, but you have hard and impenitent hearts, and you judgmental hypocrites are storing up wrath against yourself on that day when the righteous judgment of God will be revealed. God longs that we would have our hearts turned, that we would be less interested in pointing out the obvious sins of others and more interested in mining the truth about our own souls so that we can come to the point where we would say from the bottom of our heart, Jesus, I am so sorry for who I am, for what I have done, for the way I have broken your heart. Will you forgive me? Last Thursday, I received some news that was very unsettling to me. And I t- turned, it put me into a, term, a complete tailspin. And I spent 24 hours. I couldn't work on my sermon. I was just, I was stricken because of it. Friday morning, I got up and I'm trying to work on my message again. And I finally gave up and I went outside and I had a very loud prayer walk with the Lord. I said, God, I do not trust you. I do not believe you. I, I do not accept the peace that you have given to me, even though I, I speak it with my words, because I'm not living that out. I, for some reason, I, can, I, I insist on holding on to this anxiety. Will you forgive me? Please give me your shalom. Please help me to really trust you, because I call you Lord, and I don't behave as if you are. I, I just had to come clean with him about the, the inner sin with which I struggled. It was obvious probably not to anyone else, but it was desperately obvious to me. The message of repentance is very hard for, for us traditionalists to receive. You see, the people who live 
unrighteous, out-of-control lives, they know what they are. They know what they are doing. And they may choose to keep doing it, but not because they think it's good or because they think it makes God happy. They just want to keep doing it. And it's not hard to spot them, and it's not hard to point them out. But that other group, my group, the traditionalists, the upright, the rule keepers, the elder son in the prodigal son story, we are the ones at greater risk because we delude ourselves. It's easy for us to become indignant, easy for us to pass on our incensed Facebook posts with moral outrage, easy for us to point out all of those other nasty sinners by sending on this web link or that web link. You know, I wish that Christians would just get off of the web for a while because we bring reproach to the Lord in the way that we behave and the things we pass on and the way we throw ourselves into this stuff with such passion and indignity and, frankly, hypocrisy and meanness. We, we get outraged in this way and then we walk obliviously right into the web of our own weaving that traps us in our own self-righteous judgmentalism. I want Chapel Hill to be a church that stands for holiness. I do. I want Chapel Hill to be a church that stands courageously for God's way of living life. I do. But I don't want us to be the kind that does so with finger pointing and tisking. I want us to be so aware of our own brokenness, of our hidden agendas, our more hidden but equally toxic sins like arrogance and meanness and hypocrisy and selfishness that we cry out as the tax collector once did, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And we believe it. Last week, Ellis asked you, do you want the good news or the bad news? It turns out that Paul begins the the good news with the bad news. And I confess, these are harder sermons for me to preach because there's not a whole lot of jollies here. Not a lot of feel-goodism. But Paul is doing this for a reason. And if you can hang in there with me week by week, I promise we're coming to the good news and we're going to get a taste of it in just a moment. But Paul, first of all, has to tear down every moral pretense, every religious pretense and bring us all, especially us traditionalists, face to face with our desperate need for salvation too, from the inside out. The unrighteous and the self-righteous. We all need saving. We all need saving. But today we get a, a glimpse of the gospel. That's what communion is. Today we get a, a taste of the good news, a tasty reminder. The good news that God saw us in this broken state and that he loved us anyhow, and that he saved us anyhow. The good news that God's rightfully deserved wrath, God's judgment, rightly deserved judgment, was delivered not against us remarkably, but against his own sinless son on the cross, who took upon himself the judgment that was ours, who took upon himself the wrath that was ours, who drank to the dregs all of the evil that came upon us so that we might be saved. 
That is incredibly good news. Jesus died for the unrighteous. And Jesus died for the self-righteous too. For the Hugh Hefners and for the Tisk Tiskers. And if we receive that gift by faith, we will be saved. And so we come this day to this table. It is so easy for this to turn into one more of our rituals, one more of our traditions. But we come this day to this table, I hope with a renewed sense of our own brokenness, our own desperate need, the price that was paid. Think about the image that Jesus painted for them on that last day of simple bread and juice, what it really was. So I take you back to that night as we revisit once again the incredible gift of God in Jesus who saved us from the wrath that was our due. And now we, ministering on behalf of the Lord Jesus, offer to you this tasty reminder of God's grace, of the riches of his kindness and his forbearance and his patience, and how he delivered his wrath and justice, not upon we who deserved it, but but upon his son who did not, that we might be saved. When you tear this bread, when you dip it into this cup, when you partake, I hope in your heart you will break with gratitude and with awareness of the cost of your sin for our beloved Christ. Would you pray with me? Holy God, we, we thank you that you withhold from us that which we deserved. We, we deserved you to be mad at us. You, we deserved your judgment. We still do. So it astounds us, God, that instead you said, well, I'll lay this upon my son and not upon you. If you would like a relationship with me, I have a way out. And so thank you for our salvation. Thank you for the gift of your perfect, spotless Passover lamb torn for us, bled for us, that our sin might be taken upon himself and that we would stand before you face to face in righteousness. What an amazing gift. Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, have mercy on us. Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, have mercy on us. Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, have mercy upon us and grant us your peace. Amen.